Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the simmering geopolitical crisis in Ukraine as Russia amasses military forces along the border. In particular, we're going to be hearing from those who do not predict the imminent outbreak of war and analyze the various motives at play. Clips today are from The Vlog Brothers, The PBS NewsHour, Democracy Now!, American Prestige, and The Dig, with additional members-only clips from Jacobin Radio and Gaslit Nation. So this is Ukraine, the second largest country in Europe by area, and this is the Crimean Peninsula, which saw much of the fighting in the Crimean War that lasted from 1853 to 1856. It was sort of a Catholic versus Orthodox thing, but the larger cause was Europe fearing that Russia's power would expand as the Ottoman Empire declined. So Britain, France, and the kind of still a thing Ottoman Empire teamed up to eventually defeat Russia, and 500,000 people died, and it was generally pretty awful, and obviously resolved very little, since Europe just 60 years later would go ahead and have World War One. Then toward the end of World War I, Russia had its famous communist revolution, and Ukraine enjoyed a brief period of independence, although enjoyed may not be quite the right verb. In fact, from 1917 to 1921, Ukraine was mired in endless wars among competing factions, including Poland and the USSR and Ukrainian nationalists, even some real live anarchists. It was all very complicated. It was also extremely violent. More than 1.5 million people died. And then finally, Ukraine became part of the USSR and things became more stable for a while. But then Stalin. As many as 10 million Ukrainians starved to death in 1932 and 1933 thanks to Stalin's agricultural policies, which were not just stupid, but also actively evil. I mean, there was widespread starvation in a country that is now the world's third largest exporter of grain. Then, following World War II, Stalin forcibly deported the Crimean Peninsula's entire indigenous population of ethnic Tatars to Central Asia. So if you want to point to one individual who's responsible for a lot of this, I don't want to, you know, call anyone out, but Stalin. Stalin also moved many ethnic Russians into Ukraine, especially into the Crimean Peninsula and the western part of the country, which is the industrial center. And then Stalin's successor, Khrushchev, decided to transfer the Crimean Peninsula from Russia to Ukraine in 1954. Why? Well, Khrushchev had lots of ties to Ukraine, but also the Crimean Peninsula is not actually physically attached to Russia. As you can see here, it is physically attached to Ukraine, and it gets all of its electricity and water from Ukraine, and it's easier to administer places you are physically connected to, which is why a Alaska should be part of Canada, but that is a different story. Okay, so quick contemporary demographic snapshot. Today, about 67% of people living in Ukraine speak Ukrainian as their first language. About 30% speak Russian, although only about 17% of the population identify as ethnically Russian. And as you can see here, Russian is spoken mostly in the West and in the Crimean Peninsula. Many Tatars have returned to Crimea since the breakup of the Soviet Union, but today they only make up about 12% of the population. Okay, so flash forward to December of 1991 after the Soviet Union has broken up Ukraine had a nationwide referendum and 90% of people, including a majority of those living in the Crimean Peninsula, voted for independence from Russia. But Ukraine remained much more closely aligned with Russia than many other former Soviet republics did, like for instance Estonia, which is now part of the European Union. In 2004, there was an election and there were widespread reports of vote rigging, but the Russian-friendly Viktor Yanukovych was elected. The opposition leader, Viktor Yushchenko, led massive street protests in Kiev that came to be known as the Orange 
revolution. That opposition leader Yushchenko was disfigured and almost died as a result of mysterious poisoning. Side note, but the number of mysterious poisonings in Russia and Eastern Europe has absolutely skyrocketed since Putin came to power in Russia, which I'm sure is a coincidence. Anyway, the Orange Revolution protest led to a second election and the poisoned opposition leader Yushchenko won and yay, everything would be made of puppies and freedom and rainbows and friendliness toward Europe forever except no. For one thing, a lot of people in Ukraine, especially in the western part, want to be more closely allied with Russia and also, despite being an economist, Yushchenko wasn't very good at running the Ukrainian economy. Also, Yushchenko couldn't push through austerity measures needed to deal with Ukraine's rising debt and his friendliness toward Europe infuriated Russia, which cut off gas supplies briefly but disastrously to Ukraine in 2006. So by 2010, Ukraine was being led by the Europe-friendly and somewhat corrupt Yulia Tymoshenko, and then there were elections. And the presidential election, declared free and fair by international observers, was won by the aforementioned Russian-friendly Viktor Yanukovych. In November 2013, Yanukovych announced that Ukraine would abandon an agreement to strengthen ties with the EU and would instead become a closer ally of Russia. And that is when the protests began in Kiev's Independence Square. Those protests grew and grew until February 20th when dozens of protesters were killed by military and police, and the next day Yanukovych disappeared from Kiev. The protesters had won. They installed a new temporary government to prepare for new elections, and then the Putin regime marched into the Crimean Peninsula ostensibly to protect ethnic Russians there and Russian military installations. But this violation of Ukraine's territorial integrity is known in diplomatic circles as like a big effing deal. Crimea is already an autonomous province with its own government, so what does it want? Does it want independence? That would be hard. All of their electricity and water has to come through Ukraine. Does it want to be part of Russia again? That would be impossible without Ukrainian cooperation, which right now seems inconceivable. So that's where we are right now. I mean, unless something has happened in the last 30 minutes. So here's one narrative of these events. An unpopular and ineffective but democratically elected politician was removed from power by a mob of protesters, and the new unelected parliament briefly passed a law saying that only Ukrainian can be the official language of the country, even though many people in the country speak Russian. Furthermore, this new government wants to become part of the EU, which might bring NATO missiles to Russia's border, and that is unacceptable to Russia. I mean, I'm American. We've had some very ineffective and unpopular leaders, and what we've done is just waited for them not to be president anymore. But here's another narrative. A tyrannical leader who ordered the murder of peaceful protesters was chased from power and replaced by a government that will transition Ukraine toward free and fair elections, and Russia responded to that by invading Ukraine. Hank, I'm not trying to make a false equivalence here, but I think it's really important to understand both of these narratives. And I wanted to give a little more historical context than we've been seeing on the news because it helps us to understand that the pull between Western Europe and Russia in Ukraine is not new. I mean, the word Ukraine itself means borderland. It has for centuries functioned as the border between West and East. What Ukraine needs is stability, decades of stability, so it can grow to have its own identity, to have relationships with both Europe and Russia without being controlled by either. Right now, that dream seems really far away, but 60 years ago, Japan was in ruins. 25 years ago, Germany was divided into two countries. 12 years ago, Sierra Leone was mired in a horrific and seemingly endless civil war. But today, it's the second fastest growing economy in the world. The arc of history is long. Let's hope that it bends toward peace.
President Biden confirmed tonight that U.S. troops will be heading to Eastern Europe and NATO countries amid heightened tensions between Russia and Ukraine. He was asked by a reporter about any U.S. troop movements this evening. Have you decided how soon you would be moving U.S. troops to Eastern Europe? I'll be moving U.S. troops to Eastern Europe and the NATO countries in the near term. Earlier today, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky downplayed fears of an imminent war between Ukraine and Russia, urging the West not to panic over the escalating situation at the border. Meanwhile, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, said that Moscow doesn't want a war. But he also warned the West not to trample on his country's security interests after the U.S. delivered its response to Russia on the Ukraine crisis. We got the answers only the day before yesterday. They are written in Western style and make things as clear as mud in many aspects. But as I have said before, there are some rational kernels in there regarding peripheral issues. Russia's President Vladimir Putin also spoke with French President Emmanuel Macron today and voiced his frustrations over his country's unmet demands. Nick Schifrin is here following all of these developments. So, hello, Nick. What the president, the President Biden had to say a few minutes ago caught our attention. Tell us what's behind uh, these comments. The U.S. has put 8,500 troops on heightened alert, uh, prepare to deploy orders. That's what the Pentagon calls it. Uh, And the reason it's done that is it's concerned not only about war in Ukraine, uh, about war in Ukraine spreading into Eastern Europe. And so it wants to reassure Eastern flank allies. It wants to reassure NATO. Part of that is giving U.S. troops over to NATO command to reinforce that eastern flank along the Russian border. Uh, And at the same time, NATO countries are trying to do the same, reinforce uh, with French, with Dutch, uh, jets, with soldiers moving to Eastern Europe to really try and make the message to Putin clear that regardless of what happens in Ukraine, we are, uh, we being the West, we being NATO, uh, are able to deter you, are able to send you a message about how strong we feel about the number of troops that need to be in Eastern Europe and our commitment to defend our NATO allies. So, Nick, we reported what the Ukrainian president is saying, uh, telling the West not to panic. uh, But the Pentagon had something to say today. Tell us about that. Yeah, what's interesting here is the Pentagon, uh, the U.S. and Kyiv really aren't on the same page when it comes to the threat. You know, from the U.S. perspective, they see Russian troops. They see Russian material rushing to the Ukrainian border every day. These videos released by the Russian military of defense every day. And what the U.S. sees is a more serious and imminent threat than Europe has seen in decades. As we heard today, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, in a joint Pentagon press conference with the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. Sure, with 100,000 troops and uh, you've got uh, combined arms formations, ground maneuver, artillery, rockets, you got air and all the other piece parts that go with it, uh, there's a potential that they could launch uh, on very, very little uh, warning. That's possible. Uh, This is larger in scale and scope and the massing of forces than anything we have seen um, uh, in recent memory. And I think you'd have to go back quite a while into the Cold War days to see something of this magnitude. Now, just before that, we heard Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky say that talk of imminent war was causing panic in in Ukraine. And he criticized the U.S. for making a decision last weekend for evacuating diplomatic families, uh, as we heard today through Zelensky's official interpreter. Embassy employees uh, should be here. 
these are the captains. I'm sorry, but this is the captains of the diplomatic corps. They're, they're the representatives of their respective countries. And the captains are the, the last who should be leaving the ship. And I don't think we have a Titanic here. Ukraine is moving forward. Sometimes they're not even using diplomatic language. They're saying tomorrow is the war. This means panic on the market, panic in the financial sector. Ukrainian officials tell me, Judy, that they believe the U.S. is actually hyping the threat, and that is leading international investors to refuse to lend to Ukraine, and that reduces Ukraine's economic growth. They also say that they're frustrated at their request for more weapons. Uh, for example, Patriot missiles, like you can see there, anti-ship missiles are being denied by the administration. Now, senior U.S. officials tell me that they are sending uh, a lot of weapons to Ukraine and that they're frankly just calling it as they see it on the border with Russia. And that frank talk continued last night in the conversation between President Biden and President Zelensky. Uh, I'm told Biden told Zelensky that Russia has the capacity to seize and hold territory and even overthrow the government in Kyiv. So, Nick, while all this is going on, is the diplomatic uh, track still alive here? Yes, very much so. Uh, earlier this week, the U.S. and NATO gave official responses uh, to Russia's demands, rejecting Russia's demands that NATO uh, never, uh, sorry, Ukraine never join NATO, uh, and that NATO roll back uh, basically to 1990s levels. Um, and instead, the U.S. wants to limit military exercises uh, in, in Europe, uh, restrict missile deployments, and talk about new arms control. Uh, now, today, as you said, Judy, Vladimir Putin said the U.S. had, quote, failed to take Russian security concerns into account. But we heard something else from Sergei Lavrov. He said there was a kernel of rationality in the U.S. proposals, and that could be a hint uh, that diplomacy will move forward. U.S. Naval War College Nicholas Gavose told me earlier today. What it means is that there are points at which Lavrov believes that he can continue negotiating directly with the United States. Uh, perhaps uh, understanding that the U.S. can't make certain formal commitments, but you might be able to jury-rig a solution with the U.S. that uh, Moscow might find satisfactory. And this is where another diplomatic track is going to be quite critical, and that is the revival of the Normandy format with uh, Germany, France, Ukraine, and Russia. That Normandy format focuses on the war that is ongoing, Judy, in, in eastern Ukraine and requires Moscow to reduce violence, but it also requires Kyiv to give areas that are controlled by Russian separatists some autonomy. And those talks will continue over the next couple of weeks. joined by Ludo de Brander, uh, who is with the group Vrede, which is the Flemish word for peace. Um, if you are the country that is the home base of NATO, talk about the response there. Well, as you said, we, uh, Belgium is hosting in Brussels the headquarters of NATO and also is uh, the capital, let's say, from the European Union, with the Commission, for example, uh, his headquarters in Brussels. So. Um, well, let's say um, it, it's similar to what uh, Rainer said uh, uh, concerning Germany. Um, you know, the, the, the first thing that our government says, and it, there are also Greens and Social Democrats in the government, uh, is that we need to fulfill our obligations towards NATO. So, and if uh, NATO asks us to deploy troops, for example, uh, to the 
towards the Russian border, towards the east of Europe, then Belgium will do this. This is the message we are given. Um, and maybe to give you an example how the Ukraine, Ukraine uh, crisis is uh, playing also uh, into the, let's say, into the interest of the military-industrial complex and is used uh, just recently, last Friday, our government decided to increase military budgets, referring to the crisis with Russia, uh, to 1.554% uh, uh, um, uh, of the gross domestic product, which is an increase uh, from 1.1% today. Um, so it's about, uh, in, in eight years' time, 14 billion euros, which is a lot of money especially with the health crisis and the energy crisis now today. So, and uh, you see there is almost no debate in media. It seems like to be almost a political consensus that this one is needed. So, and I think this is due to the NATO policy and also to the propaganda almost. We read and press their voices that uh, are standing for peace and trying to, to give alternatives to military confrontational uh, are almost not heard. So this is a little bit the, the, the atmosphere in Belgium. And, and Ludo de Brabant there, I wanted to ask you, for those uh, listeners here who may not be familiar with the uh, origins and evolution of NATO, could you talk a little bit about the original reason why NATO was created and especially why it chose uh, following the collapse of the Soviet bloc to expand eastward? Well, NATO uh, has, uh, you know, when it was created in '49, it was uh, to keep the Russians out, the Russians, uh, the, the Germans down and the United States in. That's the very famous uh, phrase that uh, is often used. Um, and of course, the Warsaw Pact has been established six years later, but it was in the middle of, let's say, when Truman gave his, his speech in '47. let's say, that, that makes the difference uh, and that started the Cold War. It was like, yeah, always with accompanying what I call the propaganda of we have to be careful for Russia, uh, Russia will invade us. And like similar, uh, that time similar to what uh, happens now. And after, you know, uh, it has already been said, I think, in the program uh, today, but uh, going further uh, on in, uh, in the 90s, when the Warsaw Pact was dissolved and the Soviet Union also became uh, dissolved and uh, with 10 states coming out of it, um, many in even mainstream polit uh, politics thought NATO is not needed anymore. But NATO, uh, it, it just the opposite happened. NATO, let's say, reinvented itself. It started in late 90s to expand its territory to the east. Uh, it changed, um, let's say, its policy of a pure defense organization through Article 5, you know, when one country is attacked, all countries will be, uh, will help and support the country attacked. This is the central, uh, let's say, task of the NATO. Uh, suddenly, there was talk about non-Article 5 tasks, which became intervention policy of NATO. And third, it started to be global by making a lot of uh, cooperation agreements with countries and regions worldwide. So, NATO... Uh, um, has re-established itself as a global actor now, more and more, as a global force. And as Reiner said, NATO, half, more than half of military spending is done by NATO. And now you see a, a big push towards all NATO countries, because this was decided in Wales in 2014 to increase their defense military budgets. 
and it will become even in a few years 60-65% of all military expenditures in the world. And so it became very important military force and I think mainly to defend geostrategical interests. It's not about security. If it would be about security, the uh, let's say the relationship with Russia would be treated differently. As Reiner said before, uh, then it would be more cooperative. We would look for uh, what, what is called common security because security is indivisible. Uh, security of the other is in the interest of the security of the one. So it is, um, but this policy is undermined by uh, NATO or this principle. And, and to what degree is, is there an opportunity for the peace movement to be able to affect the policies of some of the, uh, the key players, uh, European players within NATO? Well, well, it's very difficult. As, uh, as I said, I mean, the, there is not much coverage of the positions of uh, peace movement. What we try to do, we have to also, as media announced already in the United States on the 5th of December, uh, 5th, uh, sorry, of February, uh, so next Saturday, a vigil in, in Brussels. And what we try to emphasize is that this, this NATO is not in our interest, not in the interest of security and peace, but also not in the interest of, uh, let's say, the needs of people. We depend heavily on memberships to fund the production of this show because having principles in the attention economy is bound to cost you. And that's definitely been the case for us. When the company that was selling ads for us way back demanded that we allow our listeners to be tracked and hyper-targeted with manipulative ads, we refused because we find that to be blatantly unethical and in many countries illegal when it's done without the ability to opt in or out, which is the case for all podcasts. Now, because many advertisers have gotten used to being able to hyper-target podcast listeners through other less scrupulous shows, they're less willing to advertise with integrity on shows like ours. This has really been squeezing our finances and making every single supporting member we have that much more critical to our ability to produce this show. If you are a member, thank you once again. If you want to support the work we do, please consider becoming a member at bestofleft.com slash support. If you'd like to advertise with integrity to our audience while protecting everyone's privacy, you can reach me directly at j at bestofleft.com. Thanks, as always, for your support. There was an interesting uh, development earlier this week. Uh, the Spanish newspaper El País uh, managed, it seems, to get its hands on copies of the written replies that the U.S. and NATO uh, gave to Russia's security demands or requests or questions, whatever you want to call them, uh, which they delivered to to Russia last week. And it's it's interesting to look at them. I mean, I don't know. You can't draw any conclusions until the Russian government kind of uh, offers its take, I guess, which they've sort of done in uh, dribs and drabs, but they say they're still reviewing these documents. What's interesting to me about them is a couple of things. One, uh, the NATO response is considerably more antagonistic than the U.S. response. It's just kind of very dismissive, uh, almost insultingly so, uh, of, you know, Russia's security concerns, whereas the U.S. document seems to outline 
a couple of ways that we could move forward here in a productive way, I think. And, and actually, if the Russians, and they've, they've said, you know, they, they kind of like a couple of things uh, about the U.S. response. If they seize on this and it, it becomes a, a, a sort of springboard to further progress, you could get something that emerges from this crisis that uh, could actually be positive. And, and those pathways, uh, one of them has to do with the conflict in Ukraine and the, you know, sort of reviving the Normandy format, which is the French and German uh, brokered talks between Ukraine and Russia that are supposed to, uh, you know, work on implementing what's called the Minsk Agreement, which is defined kind of a, a broad outline for what it would take to end that conflict. We've already seen that format get revived. There was a meeting of the four countries, the four principals last month. There's supposed to be another one this month after a long period of dormancy. Ending that conflict would be a huge success. I mean, it would be a dramatic uh, development. It would definitely take down the temperature uh, in eastern Ukraine between Kiev and Moscow uh, quite a bit. And it would do a lot for the people who are living in eastern Ukraine, not just in the Donbass region, the separatist region, but all around that front line. Uh, There was just a, a report, I think, Maybe Human Rights Watch, one of the one of these international NGOs this week, uh, about the conditions under which people are living in that region, and it's just horrifying. I mean, it's you know every day you got to be worried that some you know unit on either side of the front is going to decide to shell the other side. You got to be worried about landmines. You got to be worried about you know getting access to basic needs like food. Um, so it, it's it's just been a wretched existence for people, and the the conflict has been frozen for so long that they're just kind of stuck in this uh, in this limbo. So you know that would be great if if you know you could re-energize peace talks around that conflict. That would be fantastic. The other way out potentially is a discussion about weapon systems. The U.S. response alluded to a willingness to re-engage with Russia on basically the contours of the old intermediate-range nuclear forces treaty, which the Trump administration scrapped, but which, you know, prevented or limited both uh, NATO and uh, on the Russian end uh, from putting intermediate-range missiles in Europe, uh, really having intermediate-range missiles in the field at all to some extent. And, you know, the, the U.S. response suggested an openness to talking about weapon systems. So that would include those kinds of systems. It would probably include uh, missile defense systems like the, the Aegis uh, Ashore system, which takes these uh, missile defense that the U.S. Navy has developed and, and puts it on shore. Uh, the Russians have a lot of concerns about that because they feel it could be easily rejiggered from a defensive missile system to an offensive missile system. So revival of arms control talks could be another way to to sort of uh, progress out of this situation, which would be excellent. Uh, I don't want to leave people on a happy note because really nothing has changed in terms of the dynamic. The Russians are still surrounding Ukraine. Everybody uh, in the West is still talking about uh, uh, an invasion, although the U.S. government has now said it's not going to talk about an imminent invasion anymore because it's not sure that an invasion is, in fact, imminent. Do you know what this reminds me of? Derek, tell me, tell me if you're familiar with this, but the second Berlin crisis of like 1958 to 1961, when there was a lot of saber rattling around Berlin and uh, Soviet and U.S. leaders went back and forth for literal years and then nothing changed. Um, this really reminds me of that. This, this reminds me of sort of this one of the highly tension-filled moments of geopolitical history that in retrospect don't don't appear that dangerous, but at the time seemed terrible. I, think, I don't think that's true for things like the Cuban Missile Crisis, but when one looks at the second Berlin crisis, this is really giving me echoes uh, of that, what's going on with Ukraine today. 
I just said that I think the, the likeliest outcome here is nothing, uh, changes at all. Russia, uh, you know, the, 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 the conflict in the Donbass is a tool that the Russians can use to keep Ukraine, uh, destabilized. Uh, they don't have necessarily an interest in seeing that conflict end completely. Um, and the West, you know, certainly is, is, uh, always interested in hyping up potential conflict with Russia. So, yeah, I don't, I, I think you're probably right. I think the likeliest outcome here is a lot of saber rattling, but nothing really happens. Uh, and yet the lingering shreds of optimism that I have inside me, uh, lead me to say, you know, it would be great if, if, uh, what came out of this was actually an end to the, the Donbass conflict or, and, or, uh, you know, some re-engagement on arms control. That would be, those would be fantastic developments if they, they actually happen. Pentagon says it's deploying an additional 3,000 troops to Eastern Europe as the Biden administration continues to accuse Russia of planning to invade Ukraine. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby said U.S. troops would deploy to Germany as well as Romania and Poland, which border Ukraine. The current situation demands that we reinforce the deterrent and defensive posture on NATO's eastern flank. President Biden has been clear that the United States will respond to the growing threat to Europe's security and stability. On Tuesday, the Russian President Vladimir Putin spoke out about the situation for the first time publicly in a month. He accused the United States of stoking the crisis by ignoring its security concerns about NATO's expansion eastwards. We now go to Russia, where we're joined by Ilya Budratikis, a Moscow-based historian and political writer, the author of Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia, and Verso Books mm. has just published the English translation of his book. We welcome you to Democracy Now!, Ilya. If you can start off by responding to the uh, increased tensions on the border with Ukraine, talk about whether you think Putin has decided to invade yet, um, and where this all comes from. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me here. So, <clears throat> first, uh, to say uh, that, in fact, uh, if you look back uh, to how this uh, this escalation uh, began a uh, couple of months ago, we'll see uh, that in the beginning uh, there was uh, just uh, just uh, some kind of um, uh, informational fake uh, coming from uh, from the Western media, coming from U.S. about uh, the uh, Russian plans to invade Ukraine. And then uh, somehow this fake was turned into reality because uh, Russia was uh, was uh, answering to this uh, to this uh, fake and really put the uh, troops on the border. So during these uh, two months, we see how the uh, escalation uh, growing from the both sides, and we see how uh, each side use each other to hide the risks and to gain uh, to gain more uh, from uh, from this uh, from this very dangerous uh, escalation uh, Ilya, given the fact that the situation has escalated to this extent do you think now 
uh, Putin uh, is going to invade uh, Ukraine. I mean, Zelensky himself and other uh, Ukrainian government officials, as well as, of course, Russian officials have said that the threat of an invasion is uh, highly exaggerated and uh, is far from imminent. Your response? Uh, so I, I think that if we are talking about the invasion to Ukraine as a kind of uh, plan of Putin, this uh, plan so sounds really strange, because what kind of uh, result of this military uh, solution could be to change the regime in Ukraine, to provide some long-term um, uh, military occupation of this uh, country, which is actually a big country with more than uh, 40 uh, million uh, population. Uh, so uh, uh, somehow this idea that Russia want to invade Ukraine replace the actual uh, crisis, the actual problem in the east of Ukraine, where uh, we see this uh, dead end of uh, so-called uh, Minsk uh, agreements, which are not really followed uh, neither by Russia and by uh, Ukraine, and uh, which deals with the uh, so-called uh, People's Republics in the uh, east of, um, of Ukraine. But uh, as I uh, said before, when uh, this uh, kind of fake, this kind of disinformation about the possible Russian invasion in Ukraine became a real uh, subject of uh, talks and real, uh, uh, real subject of, uh, of uh, concerns, and uh, there is, of course, growing military uh, presence of Russian uh, uh, troops on uh, Ukrainian border, uh, this uh, kind of uh, invasion became more and more more and more possible, not in terms of uh, uh, realization of some uh, some exact plan of military occupation of Ukraine, but as the possibility of the uh, some kind of uh, provocation or uh, incident uh, uh, on the border uh, between Russian and Ukrainian troops, uh, which uh, could uh, lead uh, to the further military uh, escalation. That's why uh, it is a really dangerous uh, situation. Ilya, could you comment on, on uh, Russian demands uh, with respect to the eastward expansion of NATO and also the, the relevance of NATO, uh, even as uh, almost a dozen Eastern European countries have joined the, the military alliance uh, since the, the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, on one hand you have these uh, demands uh, which were uh, put forward by the by the Russia Russia in in the mid of uh, December last year uh, where uh, Russia concerned about the growing uh, uh, presence of uh, NATO the expansion of uh, NATO uh, some possible uh, plans to integrate uh, Ukraine and Georgia into NATO NATO and and so on but on the other side, you have the situation where uh, during this escalation uh, from the both sides, NATO uh, somehow find its idea, find its legitimation, uh, because uh, NATO could exist only in the situation uh, 
of the confrontation with the uh, real enemy, with some kind of equal uh, equal force. And of course, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, after the collapse of the Eastern Bloc, uh, NATO definitely lost lost this uh, lost this uh, meaning, lost this uh, idea. Uh, and uh, also the very uh, kind of support uh, of NATO, of the membership of uh, NATO among the uh, population of the, of the countries, of the members of this uh, military uh, alliance, uh, was, uh, the, the support was not so much. So the only reason why uh, NATO now um, uh, so somehow uh get back this uh, its its idea its uh, legitimacy it's uh, only because uh, putin's russia is ready to uh, play this uh, role of uh, the enemy of of some equal force which actually russia is not if you compare it with uh, with nato uh, and uh, also uh, putin's uh, like world view uh, it's, uh, I will say, it's very comfortable uh, for the explanation why the NATO should, uh, should expand. Is Russia preparing to invade Ukraine, or is the West hyping the prospect of an invasion for its own purposes? What... Are Putin's possible aims? What are those of the United States and the EU? What, in short, is going on right now? Look, I really hate these speculations, and there have been uh, like a lot of them in the at least in the last three months, but even longer, of course. And many people turned into Putin experts, and there are other people who have their cliches about the U.S. policies. I mean, I, I'm skeptical to any. Um, kind of like cliche style uh, and one factor explanation for what's what's going on and uh, at least i would say that uh, there are at least two autonomous processes one thing is what russia is doing is what what, what they really doing and with uh, moving their uh, military and with uh, stating these demands to the NATO, and that that's uh, partially the fact. But there, there is also another autonomous process: is the perception and media representation and the official representation in the Western countries, primarily in the US, in the UK. And the, the kind of like a different uh, representations in uh, Germany, France, uh, and other Euro- European Union countries. And it, it may seem like like the U.S. may be reacting to what Russia is doing and saying that it's uh, it's going to be an imminent invasion and uh, and so on. But it's it's more like independent from from that. And it, it, we should analyze both what's going on from the Russian side, but it, we, we should also keep a very critical distance from uh, what the U.S. official says, what the CIA is uh, so generously feeding to the media, uh, starting from like three months ago when uh, there were no evidence signs that uh, anything like very 
soon invasion is prepared by Russia and their media of public and uh, covered actions that uh, may actually contribute to the escalation. So what, what, what is becoming kind of like more known uh, right now is that actually Ukrainian government uh, doesn't really take it so seriously for, for the, the prospects for the invasion in in the very near, near future. I mean, in, in the course of the like two or three weeks, as it is like very explicitly stated by the top officials in the US and just very recently by Boris Johnson, very like directly saying uh, within the same narrative and which is skeptically taken by Germany, by, by France, which are kind of supposedly looking at the same data that CIA provides them, but saying that, no, we are not seeing any signs of what, what you are telling us is going on. And the Ukrainian uh, officials in the Ministry of Defense, in the, the, in the, at the Security Council, they say it's... They, they, basically, they uh, almost explicitly uh, allude that uh, the United States is uh, using this media scare for their domestic and geopolitical purposes. They are very vague because it's like it's super important partner for Ukraine right now. Uh, and they're not ready to accuse them in very direct words. But what it's what we can read from their interviews, from their statements, it's it's basically this that the United States are kind of like exploiting uh this this story. And uh, as I said, it's it's uh uh, at, at least partially independent from the real actions from the Russian side. And, and it's not only the Ukrainian government, it's also the independent analysts. Uh, just recently, the Center for Defense Strategies, it's, this is a think tank, um, Ukrainian think tank, which is headed by uh, the former Minister of Defense, published a report where they say that say, uh, Regard very unlikely uh, a large any, any large scale invasion from Russia to Ukraine with occupation of large territories with occupation of the big cities in the course of the next several weeks. But also they they think it's very unlikely that they may do this uh, in the course of of uh, of 2022 until the end of the year. So they believe it's uh, much more probable that Russia may use uh, so called hybrid. Attacks, attacking the infrastructure, attacking maybe cyber attacks. And uh, at the very most, they may uh, do kind of like a targeted strikes, but they don't really see the preparations for a really large scale invasion. Those uh, one, 100,000 or whatever uh, soldiers they amassed at, at the Ukrainian borders, at least as we are told. It uh, really looks like uh, far below the number of the military that would be required to attack such big country as Ukraine. And Ukrainian military is at least 200,000, and actually even more if you count all other institutions and all other units that, are, that also have access to the arms and so on. So, yeah, that's uh, at least we need to... We need to, 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 keep in, to keep in mind that, yes, Russia is doing something and they may respond if they won't be satisfied by the NATO response to their demands. But their response, uh, not, un, not necessarily will be 
targeted on Ukraine. And even if on Ukraine, it's not necessarily and probably very unlikely that it will be in that form of the large-scale attack and occupation. Because then there would be different consequences. And uh, as, as, the, as the report from the Center of Defense Strategies basically says, it would be simply suicidal for Putin. Even if they attack and occupy Ukraine, even if they would ready really to amass uh, enough forces uh, in a short time for this, then what are they going to do with this? How they, how, how would it even solve their problems and how are they going to solve the new problems that would arise for Russian geopolitical situation, for Russian economy, for Russian government capacity to keep uh, the revolting population in Ukraine. So there would be many questions and, and many, 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 many problems with this. Medea, I wanted to ask you, we've been hearing now for weeks the same uh, story repeated in uh, almost every newscast. A hundred thousand Russian troops uh, uh, on the Ukrainian border. Uh, No one talks about the fact that there are 320,000 American troops still in Europe (laughs) Uh, 30 years uh, after the collapse of the Soviet bloc. Uh, and those troops are somehow not considered a, a problem or a threat. Uh, who are they there for, those 320,000 troops? Well, that's right, Juan. I think this is a moment to educate the American people about all of the bases that the U.S. has surrounding Russia. What if Russia had uh, bases in Mexico and Canada uh, with missiles that were pointed at the United States? Um, This is an educational moment to, uh, and I'm glad you're spending the hour on it, talking about NATO and how NATO has expanded from 16 members at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union to 30 members, uh, including members that were part of the Soviet Republic and how Ukraine has a 1,300-mile border with Russia. And of course, this is extremely intimidating. And so I, I go back to saying The American people have to recognize how the U.S. is the expansionist country that has has bases all over the world and that NATO is antagonizing not only Russia, but it's antagonizing China. It says that China is a threat to NATO security. That's the North American Treaty Organization. Uh, China is in the Pacific. So um, it is a moment to say, not only do we want Ukraine not to be part of NATO, but we want NATO disbanded. And you can go to the Code Pink website and see all kinds of ways that you can get involved in this peace movement right now. And Medea, do you have uh, contact with uh, peace movements uh, either in the Ukraine or in Russia? That are uh, what are they telling you about their concerns about this growing drumbeat for war? Well, we are part of a movement that is called No to NATO, and we have uh, reached out to groups in Russia, uh, in Ukraine. And uh, they are all saying the same thing. Nobody wants to go to war. Uh, There are many people in Ukraine that are worried about uh, Russia, but they say war is not the answer. Uh, We know that 
the only ones who benefit from war are uh, the military industrial complex, uh, the, the uh, media that has been so sensationalist and increases its ratings. Uh, and that's why people in Ukraine itself are saying a uh, slow down, step back. Uh, and of course, the people of Russia saying the same thing. Several executives for U.S. military contractors have boasted that the worsening conflict in Ukraine is boosting their profits. This is Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes speaking last week during an earnings conference call with investors. Yeah, the answer is obviously we are seeing, uh, uh, I would say, opportunities uh, for international sales. Um, we just have to look to last week where we saw the drone attack in the UAE, um, uh, which would attack some of their uh, their facilities. Uh, and, of course, the tensions in Eastern Europe, the tensions in the South China Sea, all of those things uh, are, are putting pressure on, uh, on, on the, some of the uh, defense uh, spending over there. So uh, I fully expect we're going to see some, some benefit from it. Uh, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics all fund the Center for Strategic and International Studies, an influential think tank that supported U.S. military action in response uh, to a Russian invasion. And, of course, you go back to the famous promise that then-Secretary of State James Baker made to uh, Gorbachev—when uh, was it? In uh, 1990, uh, saying, not one inch eastward, um, that promise that NATO would not expand to Russia's border. Um, Medea Benjamin, if you can talk about what we hear in the United States on the corporate networks, the lack of presence of those who are opposed to a war with Russia. Well, think, first, I think it's very important that you bring out who in these defense contractors and military contractors, more accurately, um, are uh, benefiting from this. We have given over $3 billion in, quote, lethal aid uh, to Ukraine since the 2014 coup. And the NATO alliance itself, you know, there are some organizations that come together to do things like reduce poverty or greenhouse gases. The NATO alliance has a goal of increasing the percentage of the GDP that countries spend on the military. It's actually a goal. Only 10 of the 30 so far have reached that goal. And there is pressure on those deadbeat countries that prefer to put money into education and healthcare instead of buying uh, fighter jets and bombs. So NATO itself is uh, really doing the bidding of the military industrial complex. And um, uh, so uh, the media uh, is another uh, winner in this. Their ratings go up. Uh, they have sensationalized this. And as you said, they don't put voices uh, of the peace movement. Uh, and I do want to say that we need the progressives in Congress uh, to speak out more because they have more access to the media that we do. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Vlogbrothers giving some historical context on Ukraine. The PBS NewsHour broke down some of the news and negotiations. Democracy Now! looked at the role of NATO. American Prestige compared the responses to the news from NATO and the U.S. Democracy Now! discussed the situation with a Russian historian who sees invasion as a bad idea, but that expanding NATO is still necessary.
The dig looked at why Europe and Ukraine are not taking the threat of invasion as seriously as the U.S., and Democracy Now! spoke with longtime peace activist Medea Benjamin about opposing NATO for the sake of peace. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Jacobin Radio discussing the economic history of Russia and the U.S. since the end of the Cold War and Gaslit Nation explained the history of the relationship between Russia and Ukraine and why Ukraine will fight for their freedom. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Craig from Ohio. It's been a while since I called, and I just listened to your conversation with the conservative and the libertarian. And I wanted to, on curation, that was a topic that um, you talked about uh, maybe a year ago, uh, but sometime in 2021. And it came up in, in this conversation that I just heard. And I wanted to give you some props for what an excellent job you do at curating the information you present on Best of the Left. And the particular example that I thought of a year ago or so was during the latest incursions, attacks by the Israelis on uh, the Palestinian territories. And I heard, I happened to listen to a podcast of uh, Real Time with Bill Maher. Don't ask me why let's still listen to that show. My short answers are the jokes are sometimes amusing and it's a good window into the liberal mindset. I think, you know, Bill Maher is a perfect example of the democratic establishment liberal way of thinking. So he had a discussion about what was going on in Israel at the time, entirely in defense of the Israelis. I'm sure you and your audience can imagine all of the reasons that he gave. And what was frustrating and disturbing to me about what he was saying and what his guests were saying is that I could hear how persuasive that would be to an audience of liberals or people who are just casually paying attention to the commentary on the news of the day. And I wasn't, you know, I was trying to think, well, how would I respond to what I know to be slanted and getting such a less of a picture that it, it doesn't do justice to the issue and how complicated it is and why Bill Maher ultimately was wrong. So then within a few days, you had a Best Left episode that talked about, or that, that had a lot of different progressive and left-wing voices going into all of the reasons why the Israeli, if you just took the Israeli position without factoring in the needs, the humanity of the Palestinians, you were going to get a very biased picture. And that episode was excellent at laying out all of the reasoning why. So that I just wanted to let you know I love that show. It was just the perfect distillation of why the best left is so good at curation. And thought I would call because your conversation with with the libertarian and conservative triggered that in my mind. So I thought I would finally give you a call just to let you know. Thank you. <laughs> Keep doing a great job. Talk to you later. Bye. 
So you, the audio fixed clip in the first time he talks, the guy posting still sounds like the devil. Secondly, he describes the impact of the internet 30 years ahead of time in a way where I think he might be the devil. I mean, who else could know so well about Faustian bargains and the decline of our civilization and the cost of the internet besides the devil? I think he might have been the devil and might have taken, you know, the soul for the price of the internet. And that's why we, we have it now. And he was actually explaining well ahead of time when, like, I mean, modem, people didn't even have personal, I mean, people, I was still using a typewriter. I, I was 12, but I was definitely still using a typewriter in 1992. Uh, we did not have a family computer from 1996. So this guy, first of all, not only knows um, how the internet is going to be before the internet really was a thing, but then further, he actually explains the ramifications of how it will affect our society 30 years in the future. So, I mean, I am not a believer in the supernatural, but I think this convinced me. I mean, is this a deep fake? Or is, what was, is, is this guy actually, maybe he, maybe he sounds like the devil because he was. No, um, joking aside, man, that was, uh, the audio wasn't perfect uh, at times, but holy crap, I, I, I trust you not to, de- to not to fake me, but like, I was like, how did someone in 1992 predict all this? Is this just one guy getting lucky out of hundreds of voices and we're just selecting the one person who got it right? You know, a thousand monkeys on a thousand typewriters infinitely, one of them's gonna type a sentence? Or was he really just that brilliant? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I was blown away by his analysis and also the relevance of his three questions regarding you know, what problem does it solve and for whom does it solve it and I, at the top of my head I'm not remembering certain questions but it was you know, <laughs> I, you know I was kind of spooky I mean futurists really get it right that guy nailed everything that's amazing all right Jay I'm done rambling I wish you um, all all the best take care bye-bye Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Now, real quick, Nick, the second voicemail we heard, he's referring to a Neil Postman clip from episode 1466 on the Faustian Bargain of Technology. There was a clip that had bad audio when I initially posted it, and I mean unlistenably bad, and then I fixed it, and it, you know, the fixed version is only merely distorted, but after having done all that, I discovered that there actually does exist a better version of that interview on the internet, but we'd only found the distorted one during the production process, and I figured, honestly, we're just lucky to have any record of what was happening back in the 90s, since those wax cylinders they used to use to record everything can deteriorate over time. You never know what you're going to be left with. Now, on today's topic, just a couple of quick things that came to my attention a bit late to be included in the show itself in the form of a clip. 
The first is a pretty reasonable-sounding theory put forward in a New York Times op-ed titled, Europe Thinks Putin is Planning Something Even Worse Than War. And it's basically arguing that Europe and Ukraine aren't downplaying the threat from Russia compared to the U.S. the way it sometimes sounds. Instead, they just see the threat differently. They think it's much less likely that Russia will invade than they're using the threat of invasion as a more effective tool to destabilize and, and you know, divide Western Europe and the U.S., than an actual war would. Like, if they invaded, it would probably have the opposite effect of galvanizing a united force against Russia. So using the threat of invasion, plus propaganda, plus probably cyber attacks, and that, all the sorts of things that we know they've already been doing, seems like a much more likely and, and potentially more successful strategy for Russia to use in this situation. So normal war actually seems very unlikely for many of the reasons discussed on the show, but, you know, there are other thoughts at play. Secondly, I just wanted to point out some news that also came in too late, which is that Russia and China have just announced a much more formal and detailed agreement between the two countries than seems to have been made before, you know, according to people who pay attention closely to this sort of thing. It's not a full NATO-like military support pact, but it's as close to something like that as we've seen between those two countries. And the primary point of the agreement is pretty clearly to create a new power dynamic to stand up against the collective NATO countries. And we heard from American and European peace advocates speaking in the show today against the continuation of NATO, full stop. And one could see this new development between Russia and China, I think, in a couple different ways. What seems likely is that it is the existence of NATO and how it has acted that has actually precipitated the Russia and China agreement, creating a combined power of autocratic nations that makes the collective West quite nervous. But of course, supporters of NATO will now point right at this new agreement as the reason why NATO needs to be kept in place and expanded. In fact, we heard that point made on the show even though it was made before the news of this agreement had broken. So, the cycle goes on. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Ken, and Scott for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, web mastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.